COP26 has now drawn to an end, but it's important that we keep the conversation alive about how we will achieve net zero. The built environment contributes 38% of greenhouse gases globally. This This includes construction, the use of buildings and infrastructure, as well as demolition. Therefore, as a sector, we have significant responsibility to work together to achieve a net zero future. At Balfour Beatty, we have set an ambition to be beyond net zero carbon by 2040 and are in the process of setting a science-based target. In addition, we are a signatory to the UN's Race to Zero. Today, we are joined by representatives from three organisations who have set similarly ambitious carbon reduction targets. With a slight change to the advertised agenda, Dean Cowick-Crisp, Principal Environmental Advisor from National Highways, will be joining us. National Highways have recently launched their Net Zero Highway Strategy. Dean has kindly stepped in at very short notice, so we really appreciate his support today. Kirsten McCarthy, Director of Sustainability at Aggregate Industries, who has set a science-based target to commit to reach net zero carbon emissions, including with the value chain, by 2050. And Catherine Mills, the Environment and Sustainability Manager and Carbon Reduction Lead at Story Contracting. This year, Story Contracting submitted their commitment letter to set a science-based target and are in the process of validating it. To begin with, we will hear from James Cadman, Head of Consultancy and Carbon at Action Sustainability and the Supply Chain Sustainability School. He will talk us through the research that Balfour BT conducted jointly with the Supply Chain Sustainability School ahead of COP26. The paper is called Greening the Chain and looks at the opportunities and barriers for the built environment supply chain to achieve a net zero future. James, can you tell us a bit about the key findings from the Greening the Chain research? Thanks, Catherine. More than happy to. And good afternoon, everybody. It has just ticked over noon, so we're technically in the afternoon. Let me just get the right screen up on my machine. Um, Yes, we undertook a rather extensive survey asking quite a few different questions of the uh, stakeholder audience as to their feelings um, and experiences with respect to uh, climate change, net zero targets, and some of the barriers and opportunities that exist in and around it. <clears throat> We've got some really interesting statistics that came out and some, also some more qualitative findings that were really useful in understanding the direction of the industry, and importantly, what we can do next. Um, it's not just a, um, a kind of taking a pulse on where we are now, but importantly, what are the things that we can address so uh, some of the key things that, that came out, which were, which were good to read as well, was that pretty much three quarters of all respondents said that net zero is a positive business opportunity. It's something to go for. It's not something to be concerned about or worried about necessarily. It's a very much a positive opportunity. So that's a, an overwhelming majority. And even more so, almost 90% of respondents are implementing some kind of carbon reduction strategy already. That could be net zero, uh, sorry, science-based targets. It could be some other kind of net zero trajectory. Uh, Many of them are science-based targets, but there are others out there. Um, So again, you know, almost nine out of 10 respondents saying, look, this is something that we know we need to do and we're putting measures in place. So what I took from that and what many of us took from that is that the time for talking and saying, oh, we should be doing something, is diminishing and receding. It's like, let's get on and actually do something now. Let's put those um, measures into place. (coughs) But just to temper that kind of enthusiasm and positivity, about two thirds of respondents said that there's still 
quite a lot that needs to be done in our sector to overcome some of the barriers. Uh, and I'm sure you've got lots of barriers in, in your mind about, you know, why is it hard? Why is it difficult to implement? And just to give you a few of those, and I'm sure it's not exhaustive. I'm sure we could all come up with other other things that, that could potentially slow us down. But things we with things that we need to address, if we're going to be positive about this, then there, we need to turn those barriers into something that we can actually um, tackle and uh, and get over. So skills and training was a, was a key one that came out. Having the knowledge of, well, what does net zero mean? What do we need to put in place to tackle it? What are some of the, um, the physical things we need, whether it's equipment or digitization, telematics, or whether it's just uh, people's understanding and knowledge, that kind of training basis is still, uh, still needs a lot of work on it. And obviously, I'm from the supply chain school, and that's one of the things that we are there for, is to provide that, uh, the, the access to that knowledge and learning on a free basis to anyone in the sector to help upskill themselves at an organisational level, but also individually. There were some other kind of fundamental things as well. Uh, one of them that came out time and time again was the availability um, of low carbon materials. And that's kind of any kind of material that you, you want to think of. And I would include in that equipment as well, the embodied carbon of equipment and the, the energy efficiency of that equipment, not just the, you know, the bricks, the blocks, the asphalt, the steel and the concrete and so on. Um, and you, you can break that down into a few different aspects. It's not just the physical tonnage quantity availability, but the choice as well for different applications. More and more of these products are coming onto the market, and I'm sure we'll hear from some of our other speakers today about those. But it's what came across from the survey was that, yes, it's available, but not enough and not quite in the right, the right way that, that we would be looking for. So there's, there's an opportunity there for innovation and technology development. There's always something different we can do uh, to bring new uh, materials to market but it's also the ways of working that go with that so it's 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 using modern methods of construction that came out a few times off-site um, using uh, different techniques bringing lean construction in much more as well so those kinds of uh, principles and approaches is, is really really useful and one of the key barriers in particular with the materials and I saw this a few years ago when the school did a, a conference on low carbon concrete it's some of the testing methods as well we, we got a lot of feedback that these materials exist albeit maybe not in the quantities we want and the exact specifications we want, but they do exist. But what's sometimes holding them back is the testing protocols and procedures to get them approved uh, so they can be used on site. Uh, and people won't be worried that they're not going to do the job they need to or that they're going to fail too soon. So there's that kind of concern as well, that a perfectly valid product might not get past the paperwork side of things. And that's not a new thing. It's been around for some time. And we've had conversations with BRE and other testing houses on, you know, what are the standards? What are the technical specs you need to, to get that um, get that all approved? Um, dare I say it, price came into it. Unsurprisingly, cost and price always comes in. There's a few quotes in the report about, well, if you want an electric vehicle option compared to the diesel one, you're going to pay 15, 20, 25 percent more. But as we've seen in many other uh, new technologies with supply and demand, basic economics, that stuff gets cheaper and comes down. So it's, it's getting closer to a price parity. That will take time and it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation, but it's going to come over time. But it's still clearly a barrier now. I think that and the kind of the testings thing I was just talking about earlier, all linking to the, the, the notion that our sector is quite conservative. I think it's, it's well understood that it's, it's risk adverse for obviously good reasons, but it's quite conservative. And how do we tackle some of those barriers uh, within that kind of culture that we have? So we say, look, well, let's take um, the opportunity to use this new material to try this slightly more expensive option if its whole life cost is going to be cheaper. Um, but taking that upfront, um, that upfront gamble, but a, a measured gamble. Um, 
there's definitely something in there as well about the the contracting process and that links into procurement as well that came out strongly about getting earlier contractor involvement so getting all the right people around the table as soon as possible the designers the architects the the contractors the, the site guys you know whoever it happens to be who's involved that they're there together as soon as possible uh, rather than some kind of linear fashion in the way that you actually do the project and only bringing them in when it's time to for them to do their bit I had a conversation with uh, a facade uh, contractor a couple of years ago and they, they were really frustrated because quite literally they are the last thing that goes on the building. The facade goes on the outside, they're the last ones there. And because of that, they were the last into the conversation when if they'd come in a lot earlier, they could have done things better, either quicker, cheaper, lower carbon materials, you name it. So there was that inherent frustration in that that kind of contractor engagement system. Um, so yeah, there's, there's lots of things to do there. And linking into the procurement piece, finally, there's 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 a lot there around supplier relationship management, cash management, um, understanding where those carbon risks and opportunities lie in the supply chain, and then using that prioritisation to drive forward through your procurement and ultimately in your contracts as well, avoiding that let and forget. Uh, risk that you know someone does a great procurement and we're going to reduce carbon here here and here but then it's handed over to the the site team and they because they weren't involved they just maybe don't get it it's not their fault they just maybe are not aware of the drivers for it so having that communication piece um, is really important across all those key stakeholders procurement sustainability site managers and so on so lots of good feedback came out of it um, some of it wasn't new but it was good to have it confirmed other bits were new uh, and kind of gave us a bit more insight so that's a good summary, hopefully. Thank you very much. Yes, that was really comprehensive and some really interesting findings as research. So um, now Michelle McAteer, who is the head of carbon and reporting for Balfour BT, will give us a summary of the key COP26 takeaways for the built environment sector. Thanks, Catherine. And yeah, welcome, everyone. And um, so, as Catherine mentioned, I'm head of carbon and reporting at Balfour BT, and my role is really to, to measure our carbon footprints from all of our global operations. And James um, touched upon the science-based targets, and I know Catherine mentioned there that, that we have committed to setting science-based targets. And we, we feel that's really important in order for us to, to understand our carbon footprint um, across all of our operations globally, but also to help us in the development of our, our transition plan and how we're actually going to reduce. That was one of the, the key themes um, at the very beginning of COP, and um, Rishi Sunak announced that large corporate organisations and public interest companies like ourselves, food tea companies, we're going to have to start um, publishing plans on how we will meet our net zero ambition and, and putting together that transition pathway. And that not just impacts us, but it also impacts our, our entire supply chain. So just looking at, at, at COP itself, there was a lot of themes that came out of it from the built environment. And we had a, a construction day and built environment day there at COP, and we it covered a whole range of different um, activity that's happening within the construction and infrastructure sector and showcase some of the really great um, things that, that the industry is doing at the minute. But the, I think the first and foremost thing is now is the time to act. So what are we doing and, and what has COP um, generated in terms of where the industry and sector will move? So the, the main thing I think that came out of it was technology and innovation is going to play a huge pivotal role um, towards a more sustainable built environment. I mean, as an industry, We've already started to see a lot of that innovative developments and technologies and, and where they've been adopted across the multiple sectors um, within infrastructure and construction. Um, and that's from the, the introduction of 
example, solar power, um, the use of electric vehicles and plants on site. And it is these changes, both big and small, which should, we, sh we all should be really aiming for, no matter what size of organisation um, that we come from. And making those low carbon technologies um, like these cheaper as well and more accessible to everybody in, in the industry and across the supply chain. And making them much more attractive than the current fossil fuel um, plant and equipment um, that we have at the minute and all those other um, solutions that, that we currently use. So the push towards the sustain sustainability is driving that innovation um, in ways like it's never done before. And it's moving at such a rapid pace um, as well. So um, we must look to cut um, the, the resource use without losing productivity as well. I think that's another really key thing as well within our industry. The productivity is really um, important in order to encourage the fast rate of innovation, that, that uptake that we do that we do need. And further to the innovation, we must also learn to scale technology sufficiently in order to make it economically viable and to, to make that difference and to see those emissions cuts, deep cuts that, that we need to that we need to see in the in the short term and the medium term. The second thing I think that, that was the key takeaway from the, the built environment piece was that there was several significant agreements signed affecting the built environment in the construction sector. So over the two-week period um, during COP, countries and organisations um, made several pod positive pledges. And there was an, also, as part of those pledges, we've seen um, encouragement from the, the SMEs as well and encouraging them to sign up to these pledges. And I know signing up to these pledges can be it can be very daunting because we don't know all of the answers and, and we're signing up to these commitments and, and how are we actually going to achieve them. So I think there's been a bit of reluctance, not because people don't want to do the right thing. It's just really understanding what it is that, that they, they're signing up to and, and what they need to do. And that, that's really important to acknowledge that as well. So some of these agreements included things like the, the global coal to clean power transition statements. So we've seen many countries um, and making the commitments to phase out coal power, um, including five of the world's top 20 coal power using countries. And what that means then for their countries and their supply chains and their industries um, within those, that that's going to have um, huge um, repercussions on those industries and transforming um, those organisations and those sectors within those. That, that's going to be huge. But those commitments have been made, which is a, a step in the right direction. And people will sign up start now to try and work those out. Um, also within the built environment, we've seen the, the net zero carbon building commitment. So the World um, Green Building Council announced that there were 44 um, large companies signing up to the, the net zero buildings commitment, and that's globally. So signatories have pledged to boldly address um, embodied carbon emissions. And that's obviously the, the biggest hotspot within, within this sector, looking at those materials and and how we can actually reduce those. So it was great to see that coming through um, at, the, at the, the, the global stage. And then the third and final one, um, just on, on the commitments, or the, the, sort of the more high-profile one, was the UK government announcing the, the Urban Climate Action Programme, which supports cities and regions, um, not just in developed, but also in developing countries um, that are going to be most impacted by climate change and accelerating that transition to net zero. Um, with them as well. And then finally, the key to back to the very first point, um, now is the time to act. So it's quite clear that the, the clock is ticking and we, we need to get on board with this as soon as possible. And we can only really achieve that if we're all doing it together. 
Um, so larger companies like ourselves, Dr. BD, I mean, we see it as our responsibility. We've been on this journey with carbon and um, measuring carbon and reporting carbon and reducing it for the last 10 years. So we do have um, experience in, in this area, certainly on our direct operations. And for those SMEs or those more large organizations who have never had to do any of this before, measure the carbon footprint, put a transition plan together um, in ways that they've never done before. Um, so we can, they can learn from us and we're, we're happy to impart that knowledge and explain to them what our journey was like, what challenges um, that we um, faced over the years and, and how we overcame those. I mean, we don't have all of the answers, but we can certainly support um, our supply chain partners in that transition. So prior to the summit, um, I think it's also worth pointing out that um, when I say the clock is ticking, so prior to the to COP26, the globe, we were, we were on course for a 2.7 degree warming globally. And during the, during the course of the, the two week negotiations, um, that has reduced, or that has reduced to, um, 1.8 degree, which is still not the 1.5 degree that we need to get to. So an awful lot more needs to be done. And we do need to be committing to, um, more stringent targets and setting ourselves challenging commitments. Um, not just for our, our own businesses, um, but also for the for the sector as well, and to help, um, yeah, everybody to achieve that goal. Brilliant. Thank you very much. That's really insightful. So we'll now move to the panel discussion to understand a bit more about the carbon reduction strategies for national highways, aggregate industries, and story contracting. Dean, starting with you. The National Highway Strategy includes a requirement for the construction plant and compounds to be zero emissions by 2030. What do you consider will be the hardest area to achieve this in? Uh, Thanks very much, Catherine. Um, Yeah, uh, we're seeing zero emission plant on site. Um, We're seeing small scale equipment. Uh, The change and the challenge is going to have to come from from the larger equipment. we're, we've also committed to the, the HGVs, that are d- the vehicles that are delivering um, materials and resources to, to our sites to be by, by, by zero emission lorries uh, at a future date. And, and you know, we're, we're, we're working now already on potential tra- – working on potential. It doesn't sound very committed, does it? Um, we're, we're pulling together uh, – <laughs> Yeah, we, we, we're working on, on, on um, proposals that will, will trial those zero emission lorries. And, and, and I've seen uh, examples in, admittedly in quarries, not, not on, uh, with, the, with the, the labor and the, the dynamics that go on on a, on a, on a much more constrained, con, um, say, highway construction site. Um, but, but I've seen the, the elect, massive electric vehicles, uh, autonomous as well, probably driven by a teenager sitting in a cabin. Um, that, that the opportunities are there and they are coming. Um, uh, but, but I think the, the large scale stuff uh, is, is a challenge. I think you, uh, somebody mentioned, um, the, uh, the task, task lighting on, on PV and batteries, as say small scale plant, smaller plant. Um, I would pose a question to all contractors to to match the plant to the job and not and not be not be boys and just say let's get a big big tonka toy here and 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 get this job done, um, which is probably going to make me very unpopular with many many of the contractors on the call. But um, but if we can match the plant, do the job, and and I suppose as client we're setting the ask, 
um, as as major supplier uh, major contractors like Balfour and others, you can you can respond to that, um, and and then and then there'll be an encouragement encouragement elsewhere. Um, I know I know certainly I've seen quite locally here. I'm based in Bedford, and a plant supplier close by is um, is, is launching a, a sustainability centre uh, for for their hire to to promote the the use of these green, if I can use that word, uh, equipment. I think the the big stuff's going to be the going to be the challenge. Thank you. Um, and within your strategy, you have a focus on asphalt, cement, and steel sectors. So I was wondering what actions that you're taking to reduce carbon in these areas. Yeah, we're a bit nervous. I'll be stop stop with the bad news. I think we're a bit nervous already um, on the uh, on structural use of um, of concrete uh, for, for for greener greener solutions, lower lower carbon solutions. But where it's not hugely structural um, on your joint venture scheme on the on the A14, um, I know we used um, uh, much less carbon intensive uh, cement concrete there on um, on curbs, for example, and drainage. We've take, taken that first step. Um, we have changed one specification so far already since the launch of the plan, um, and that's to to allow uh, warm mix asphalt. Um, uh, as, as, a, as the default, it, it's almost a departure now from that. If, if, if there's a, a need not not to use that, um, and steel in, in the rebar sector, uh, I know they've, they've <laughs> I'm sounding like a comedian now. They've raised the bar uh, to, um, to to allow for um, uh, a much much more sustainable product from from labour workforce responsible sourcing, recycling, circularity in that, um, and, and lower carbon production as well. But what we've got to do, and we have them all lined up now, um, our project initiation documents for, for all the actions from the net zero plan, and those, those PIDs themselves contain a whole string of actions, and I've got to put my hand up for a, to be owning a few of those. Um, and, and on this, on this uh, sector, we, we hope to make some really a really open dialogue and, and constructive dialogue on asphalt. Um, I think that's, that's a fantastic opportunity for us. I think it's probably the largest purchase, single purchase in the country. Um, and of course, it's, 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 it's part of both the design and the maintenance uh, of, of every road uh, in perpetuity until such times as somebody comes up with something else. Uh, so we're really, really optimistic there. Um, and the cement and steel sectors, we're, we're going to be big players, not maybe main players. Um, but we want to be at the table, having a conversation, make sure that um, that we all all speak the same language, which I, I think I think we will do, um, in terms of manufacturing, production, um, and and other clients um, uh, requiring these 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 resources. So uh, I, I'm very positive about it. It's not for tomorrow um, uh, on on maybe steel steel and concrete, um, but uh, but it's 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 something that that's possible. Um, and the sectors have have their their trajectories for their their movement towards um, towards net zero, which I think is really encouraging to see those those things already exist. Great, thank you very much. And I think that's a very um, good time to bring in Kirsten and um, the perspective from aggregate industries. Um, so in the research, we found that half of respondents were saying they find it too hard to get lower carbon products, materials, and processes adopted by customers. So are there any ways that you found to overcome this that others could adopt? 
Yeah, um, good afternoon, everyone. And just quickly, it's a pleasure to be here. So um, just briefly, those who don't know who aggregate industries are, so we manufacture and supply a wide range of construction materials, um, including aggregates, asphalt, ready-mixed concrete and precast concrete products. And we also offer a national road surfacing and contracting service. Um, and we are committed to accelerating our journey to net zero and achieving it before 2050. And of course, a part of that and a key part of that is enabling us to supply to the market low carbon products. Um, and firstly, I think going back to the question, um, it's useful to understand the barriers to adoption. And I think we've already covered a lot of those. And James has obviously set that the scene at the start of this um, webinar. So I'll just focus on a, a couple of them. And I think I'll tackle price first and foremost, because I think that that comes uh, into this. And I've, you know, being in, in the industry, actually relatively new to the industry, um, I found that and I have this maybe um, misconception uh, around the price of low carbon products. Sometimes there is a, a view that low carbon products are actually cheaper to produce. Um, and I think that's because that we are utilising waste materials in, in the production of those, those products. Um, but I think that is a, is a misconception. Um, whilst we do often use waste materials and they are cheaper to produce, in reality, there are only a few exceptions whereby you can make savings. Um, so within aggregate industries, you know, we have them to invest significantly to decarbonise the products. So there will be a price premium on some of our products. And we have to invest significantly, including research and development, innovation, the infrastructure changes that are then required to then reduce the embodied carbon of our products, and then a switch to low carbon fuels. And, and because of this, sometimes we do have to charge a premium. So I think price is, is a barrier. Um, what, how can we overcome this? So I think one of the things is through incentivisation. And I think we will look to the government to support this. Um, and I think we're already starting to see some traction in this area, um, in particular around the changes for public procurement notice. So uh, you'll all be probably aware on the call of PPN 0621 and that guidance. What that's done is I think it's allowed um, the, certainly the supply chain and our customers and clients to start to measure a carbon. And for those that aren't already doing that, to, to, to understand where, what carbon is. And I think that in its own right and its future development of the PPN 0621 process, where we're, I think future versions of that will require us to not only set targets to decarbonise, but also demonstrate that we're moving to, closer to that target. So I think it's coming in terms of that that shift and, and that, that um, requirement. But I think government can do more to incentivise that um, and perhaps accelerate the future uh, requirements on the policy side. Uh, so that, that's, that's where I think um, it, we can maybe tackle the price and, and through government uh, action. And then also I think there's perhaps the knowledge on the client side or a lack of potential confidence in the products that we produce. So I think we have a role to play in that um, at aggregate industries and, and, and the supply chain to um, work with our uh, clients and customers to and also train our commercial teams to provide that assurance and provide that confidence and knowledge that we are, you know, the carbon product, low carbon products exist today. Um, one thing that we are investing in at aggregate industries is a, a new carbon calculator. So we'll be hopefully bringing that to market next year, which will have robust mechanism so that we can demonstrate to our customers and clients that the, these are the carbon savings and reductions. So I think that might help in terms of the confidence uh, piece to, to push our customers and clients along. along.
That's great. Thank you very much. And, and in Capram, from a story contracting perspective, what were the drivers to set a science-based target? Hello, everyone. Um, just for those of you who don't know who Story Contracting is, we're a UK-based civil engineering contractor and we're a tier one contractor in the rail industry. So, um, yeah, I would say, honestly, that our decision to go for the science-based targets approach was mainly client-driven. Um, but having said that, as a responsible business, we're a family-owned business. Um, we wanted to do the right thing. Anyway, and so we've already had um, carbon reduction targets in place for a number of years now, um, mainly focused on our scope one and two emissions. So I think that obviously the science based targets uh, process makes us focus more on our scope three, which is the difficult one. Um, and I think we're not the only ones to be finding that difficult. Um, we've got a very diverse supply chain and a lot of products within that as well that we're purchasing. So um, really, once us our clients started asking us to sign up to SBTI. It was really just a natural progression to go for a, a more formal, credible process that we could kind of demonstrate our commitment. Um, and at the same time, you know, we want to support our clients and our supply chain so that we can all re reach net zero together because, you know, it's all the ultimate aim for all of us. We're in it, in it to, to get to the same end point, hopefully. Great. Um, and then in terms of recommendations that you might have for anyone who's on the call, who works for an organisation who's considering setting up a science-based target going down that route, what recommendations would you have? Well, uh, personally, having been involved in the carbon reduction process or, or the planning process, I've got a fairly long list of do's and don'ts. Um, so I'll just give you a few of them just for a flavour. And um, I would say, firstly, don't underestimate the time and the effort it takes to get a handle on your scope three emissions data. Um, but do ask your suppliers, because particularly the larger ones um, have done it before. They've got a good good idea of um, the information that you might need and the energy suppliers, et cetera, can give give data, good data these days. Um, so, yeah, ask for help and don't try and do it all on your own. Um, it can be a bit of a frustrating sort of drawn out process. But um, I think the other thing is to to realise you're not going to get all the data you need in year one. Um, we're still refining our data every year. It gets better. And I think sort of by next year, we're in a pretty good position. And we've got the, the reporting systems and the, the carbon tools in place that will hopefully give us a lot more confidence in, in our data. Um, so, yeah, I think. The other thing I would say is do undertake research, do engage with your clients and um, your supply chain, because a lot of them are doing a lot of good stuff out there. And, we're not, you know, it's too late to be reinventing the wheel. I think we need to learn from each other um, to really sort of drive things forward. Um, and last but not least, I would just say kind of put a call out for, um, you know, call for, for action really across your business and say, come on, we need lots of us to get on board and, and do do these things. And, you know, you can be surprised in the people that, that put their hands up and are willing to volunteer to, to help. We've got a team of sustainability champions within Story who, who are brilliant. Um, and we've also got various different sort of structures set up so that we can, you know, properly understand the, the challenges ahead of us and understand what it actually means for the business in terms of, financial implications and policy implications. Um, so, yeah, I think 
focusing on what's important in the sort of the near term just to start things off having focus groups on electric vehicles for example or low carbon fuels that's the way we we've tackled it a bit at a time and not trying to do everything at once thank you i'm sure that's really helpful for lots of people on the call who are early stages of setting science-based targets or considering going down that route. So thank you very much. And James, um, with the Greening the Chain research, it highlighted that small and medium enterprises lack in-house sustainability expertise. So from your your experience of working with the Supply Chain Sustainability School, what are your top tips for these businesses? Thanks, Catherine. I think Many of them are similar to what the other Catherine has just been saying. Um, they apply just the same. So some of the ones that I was thinking about when this question was posed to me was about getting an understanding of what your baseline emissions, carbon emissions are now for your business. And it doesn't have to be super accurate and perfect to three decimal places. It's just getting an understanding of how many zeros are on that number. And importantly, where the hotspots are, what are the key things that are driving your carbon emissions? Is it your fleet? Is it your uh, production facilities or your, your assets, your buildings, basically? Uh, is it the materials you buy in? Is it business travel? And it will depend. And there'll be other things in there as well. So understanding where those hotspots lie is really clear because that's going to lead you to an action plan to actually drive down your carbon emissions over time with the right support. Obviously, there's a financial investment as well that goes with it. But if you don't know what you're focusing on, you, you, you'd be fumbling around in the dark, basically, trying to think, well, which one's the biggest one I want to get my hands around? But it, it, it's, you know, get your biggest bang for your buck, basically. <clears throat> so understanding where those priorities are is really, really key as well. Um, in terms of getting that baseline, it's uh, something that, that Kirsten was talking about as well. It's accessing uh, suitable and useful tools that can help you do that calculation. There's so much information out there that's available for free now on carbon calculation that there's no, there's really no point investing money up front at the beginning. You can later on when you're more mature, but as an organisation, there's lots of free calculators, free databases all around there. The Supply Chain School has a free carbon calculator on an organisational level, uh, not a product level. Um, the you can use to understand what your footprint is by putting in some basic data getting that baseline i just mentioned understanding from that where your hotspots are it can also contribute to your clients if you if you supply into balfour bt and ultimately into um uh, national highways you're giving them a contribution of what their scope three footprint is by putting in you know what your allocation of that is so there's lots of ways of doing that i would very much echo Catherine's point about um how much time you can put to this. Uh, it, it can be a, a huge uh, time waster in some respects. You can very much focus your time. So it's the 80-20 principle for me, understanding what time you've got to put into it that, that's relevant for the outcome you want out the back of it. You know, what are you trying to achieve from this? Is this um, an efficiency drive within your organisation? Is it something where you're going for a procurement, for a tender, and you want to demonstrate what you're doing? What is the purpose of gathering that data and gathering those numbers? There has to be a goal more than just the sake of gathering the numbers. Um, and I'd very much recommend uh, engagement as well, engaging your your clients, Balfabiti, engaging your suppliers as well in your in your supply chain. What are they doing? What can what data can they give you? If you need support, is there any guidance you can get um, as well that goes with it? So there's definitely the numbers, but there's the people aspect as well. Great, thank you. Um, and then within the research, we found that 64% of respondents felt the sector is not ready yet for the government's 2050 net zero target. So what do you think the biggest opportunities are for the sector to realise net zero in their businesses? I think um, 
I think there's a lot of opportunity in some of the stats that we were getting out tying to what I was saying earlier on. Uh, I'm just going to read it off my screen so I'll get the stats right. Uh, pretty much 20% of respondents to the survey said that, they, that their organisation is investing 20% or more of their profits into low and zero carbon products. You know, it's taking that opportunity to say, look, if we want to be here tomorrow, we need to, we need to change, we need to grow and develop and adapt. Um, to a changing market and it's changing very quickly particularly around the materials I mean Kirsten was saying some really good stuff about the different materials that they're bringing to the market so there's a lot of opportunity there let's let's not rest on our laurels and another thing I mentioned earlier is the different ways of working the off-site the modern methods of construction digital all these kinds of things are really big powerful players I was up at um, uh, a production facility in Leicester, they make uh, big yellow Tonka toys, uh, to, to quote Dean's phrase there, uh, about a week ago. And I had some great fun on an autonomous um, excavator that was in the desert in Arizona, 5,000 miles away. And it was pretty much a live feed, digging and excavating. Um, so this kind of autonomous way forward is one of many things. I mean, that's not directly about carbon, but it will have other benefits as well in terms of uh, well-being and, and safety. And, you know, these things all, all link to each other. And I suppose one of the things I'd, I'd probably finish on is let's link these things together. Let's not just look at carbon in isolation. Uh, let's look at uh, circular economy, embodied carbon in all the materials and products we use. It's a whole circular economy approach. It's thinking about um, the social value that we're bringing to that to that project. How can that be linked in by by using products that have got fewer emissions? You know, you move away from uh, diesel to BEV uh, or to hydrogen or whatever your fuel source of choice is. That's going to bring down your carbon, bring down your air quality emissions. That's going to benefit your site workers, your local neighbours if you have them uh, on your site. So all of these things, they're like dominoes in my mind. You do one and they knock onto the other one in a positive, beneficial way. So lots of opportunity. Great. That sounds very positive. And so leading on from that, um, Catherine and Kirsten, um, what are the most impactful initiatives that you've carried out so far to reduce your carbon emissions? Maybe, Kirsten, we could start with you. Sure. Um, I think for, for us, it's it's around looking at, and, and James is right in terms of identifying what the hotspots are. Um, so for us, in terms of a material uh, supplier, it's all in the manufacturer of our material, our, our carbon footprint. Um, signif most significant part of our carbon footprint uh, is in the uh, production of cement, which probably won't surprise many people on this call. Uh, it actually accounts for 80% of aggregate industry's total carbon footprint, um, yet we only have two cement plants, so that kind of just puts the context. So our most impactful is really reducing the amount of fossil fuels we can use uh, to decarbonise then, and then the knockout on effect of that is the embodied carbon and reducing embodied carbon of our products. And a couple of examples of this is one investment that we've, we're currently uh, undertaking, which is the construction of um, what we call an alternative fuel facility, um, which is £13 million investment, which is due to be completed early next year. And what that allows us to do is to use um, purposely processed fuel, which is waste product, um, to uh, power our kiln. In, and that then negates the use of uh, coal, fossil fuel. So it's a, a much lower carbon process. That's probably one of our um, most significant and most impactful um, investments on the horizon because that will have a then significant lowering of our um, carbon emissions per tonne within the, the cement. 
and uh, we're also investing in our other parts of our business, including our quarries, to actually phase out the use of diesel vehicles and the dumper trucks to actually go for electronic conveyor belt systems that actually can generate and create their own energy. Um, so then that will again reduce our energy consumption. And then that what that does is translates into the product, to the end product, and reduce the embodied carbon. So when I talked about the investments required earlier to, to get to that point, then you can see that what's required uh, is significant investment um, in order to uh, yeah, lower the carbon of our products. So those are two of our kind of major initiatives and we're looking to obviously do a, do a lot more as we accelerate our journey to net zero. Thanks for bringing that to life. Um, Catherine, what are the impacts that you've had in your business? Um, well, obviously we're at a relatively early stage of measuring actual carbon reductions at the moment, but one of the things we've, we've achieved this year is um, we're pretty close to eliminating all our petrol and diesel cars off our company car list. And we've had lots of electric only vehicles ordered in the last few months as part of the kind of the lease renewal process. So we're really heading heading to a sort of a zero emissions car fleet. And then hopefully our van fleet will follow once the technology is a bit more um, available and the range and the load bearing sort of um, issues are, are ironed out. So that's sort of one thing that we've been looking at this year. Um, but hopefully next year um, we'll make bigger carbon reductions because we're switching to more eco-welfare on site. So we're using sort of solar and backup battery generation um, and, and also switching to low carbon fuels such as HVO. So I think we're going to see much bigger re- reductions in the years to come. Um, but I think really what will make the biggest difference will be engaging with our supply chain because getting more information on the low carbon products that are out there and also ones that are in development that perhaps we can support, particularly, um, you know, going back to the issue of SMEs and how we want to sort of bring them with us on the journey. And, you know, they might be doing some really exciting things and just need that little bit of investment and time to kind of pull them through that process. Um, you know, so that we all head, I suppose, in the right direction. I mean, like I said before, we've got a really diverse supply chain from people like Aggregate Industries, who are our supplier, and Travis Perkins, all the way down to sort of two man, two man and women bands. So, you know, we want to kind of keep them all within within the fold and, and see what we can do together. Thank you. And Dean, um, the issue of cost has come up several times now. Um, so how are you looking at that at National Highways? If there's a solution which is presented to you which is more costly, um, then how do you review that? Yeah, I think Kirsten first was the first to, to raise, raise price, uh, raise its ugly head. Um, we do have to respond. Uh, I think when I spoke uh, at the Institution of Civil Engineers at the launch of the Carbon Infrastructure Plan, which dates me and, and it, doesn't it, um, just before I took the stand, somebody had said, oh, well, the clients are the blockers. And that was lovely to walk up and take the podium. So you've been nicer, nicer to me today. Um, and, 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 and I think Catherine's saying it's client-driven. And I think as a, as a government, uh, sort of arm-length body, government, government-owned company, we, we need to be aware of the position we take in this, in this infrastructure sector, ourselves and, and others in rail. Um, and... And we need to step up to that. But, but I, I'm, I'm afraid I come from the camp that does it cost more? And, and I'm, I'm not arguing with Kirsten about the, the innovation and the, the, the upfront costs they're, they're having to put in to deliver the low-carbon products. 
but I don't think it's a word anybody's mentioned yet. I, my responsibility here is environmental sustainability and design. And, and I'm absolutely adamant if we design things better, um, conscious of cost and carbon, and chase the two, to, two together, and others in the infrastructure sector have done better than us, but I won't name Angling Water, they, that recognition that, you know, do I, do I have to build this? If I, if I don't draw it on the bit of paper, then it's not going to be built and something maybe better will be built. Something that is delivered, solves the problem, delivers the needs, meeting our imperatives of safety, customer service, and then the delivery of that. Um, but, but at the same time, not, you know, you can come back to the materials choice and what else did James mention? The way, the way of working is my language, but the, the, the modern methods, the on-site, off-site, we saw some phenomenal um, work there on, on, our, on our big A14 that I mentioned earlier. Um, and, and just being lean and efficient with the working, all great. But let's look at what pen goes on paper in, 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 in day one as well. And, and I see some features um, on our road that, because I've been here so long, they're the built and finished. And I look at them and I think, why did we put that there? And, and it doesn't seem to work or, or we're, we're maybe not thinking ahead. I think our programme work now in the five-year rolling programme of the road investment strategy helps. But if we, in the past, I remember when we used to do one leg and then the next job and, and there, was, I was, there was always an anxiety about how much are we building there that is temporary. Um, that temporary works clearly applies on site, but I think it can, can apply also in the, in the development of the, of the network. So, Yes, we may have to pay, pay a, a bit more, but I, I'm, I'm st- personally, you might get a different answer from Adam if he, uh, if he wasn't ill this morning. Um, I'm in the camp that we can save a lot by designing right, um, by building to specification, but ourselves challenging those specifications in the first place, and, and not being, um, let's just simply say, wasteful um, in, in works and construction. Thank you. So... Uh, as to the outcome of COP26 and after Michelle's helpful summary, I was just wondering if um, you'd mind telling us what you think is the most successful thing that COP26 has achieved. So, Michelle, should we start with you? Because uh, this is something that you've been looking at a lot and um, give everyone else a minute to think about that. Yeah, I mean, for me, with, with COP, um, it, it's that sense of urgency. And there is very much that desire now that everybody knows this is the right thing to do and we, we need to do it. And it's, it's really figuring out how we're going to, to do that. And that's, that's not, you know, one company feeling that they don't know what to do or country. Um, we're all in this together. And as we said earlier on, we're all trying to get to that same end point. So, um, COP has really focused minds, I think, and, you know, companies and countries and we, yeah, we just need to start getting on with it and getting it done and understanding what research is out there within our sector and what others are doing. And I think that the designing out of old ways of working, just as Dean has said, I mean, that's going to be pivotal as well. And then all of the technology, low carbon technologies and materials. Um, and we've seen a lot of those um, examples showcased at COP throughout, throughout the two weeks. And it was really inspiring to see that, that they're, they're there. I mean, we're not exactly where we need to be, but I do think even with the introduction of hydrogen as well, I think that's another um, piece in, in COP that, that the technology, at least, that was covered. And we will see the emergence of that over the next five to ten years. And us in Balkabidi, we're certainly up for trialing some of these technologies. 
over the next couple of years and, and looking at the data alongside, you know, the use of those and what that means in terms of cost and when costs will come down, when the infrastructure will be built to, to roll out hydrogen, for example. So, I mean, there was lots of things in COP. Um, the, the other big thing, I think, as well, from a corporate point of view, is around the disclosures piece. So, I mean, as, as um, Catherine mentioned around the, the um, scope three measurement piece, I mean, don't, uh, echoing that, do not underestimate the, the challenge that that, that, that is. And like we're going to have to report more and more. And there's so many different actors involved. You've got the clients, you've got our, our investors, you've got the policy, legal side. What do we need to do as a company? What does the client want and the life cycle emissions? I mean, all of that data is out there, but it's to be carved up in different ways. And it's making sure that we have the, the right systems in place to be able to carve that information up for all of the different people who need it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I was happy with um, a lot of the things that was covered in COP and the, a lot of the themes that came out of it, but there's very, very much a lot more to be done. Thank you, Michelle. Um, now we have a couple of questions which are coming from the audience. Um, so we have a question which is for anybody on the panel. So um, who should pay for the investment required to bring forward low carbon or no carbon solutions? So I don't know if anyone has any initial thoughts for that. I'm sure there'll be a few different perspectives uh, based on where you're from. Um, Kirsten, would you like to start? Sure, I, th I think that's a good, a good place for me to start. So, um, I mean, clearly, as the supplier and, 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 and we develop and create the product, so the investment, and as it currently stands at the moment within aggregate industries, we are taking on board that investment. But I think there has to be an acceptance um, of the industry that, as a result of that, prices may have to increase um, because the effect you know, we, we need to pass on those those costs to our customers and clients, but importantly, work together. And actually, this introduced me really well to the, I wanted to respond to Dean's point on design, because that is also critical as well. And I do agree that it's not always about an increasing price for car, um, in terms of cost of an overall scheme for carbon. Yes, the price of a product might be slightly higher. And that's because, like I said, about this misconception of using a waste material. Well, yes, it might be waste material, but there's only a limited supply of waste material. So what we're seeing is the price of waste materials to us actually increasing. So therefore, that, that has to be you know, translated in, in the cost of our products. But the design point is really important as well. Um, and working in collaboration, and we use this word a lot in the industry, but and I think we actually do it quite well. I think we all say we need to do it more, but and we worked really well with National Highways on a scheme called the A590, and, and, and Dean will probably be aware of this. And actually, that allowed us to reduce carbon of that scheme by 43%, but also significantly reduce cost through the design as well and how we operated that scheme. So I do think they go hand in hand. So there is a benefit there that also can be passed on to the customer and client. So I think just to come to the answer to the question, I think it does lie with us in terms of the investment, but I think the industry has to accept that we do all have to work together to, to uh, bear the, the brunt of that, 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 those costs. That's great. Thank you. And Catherine, from your perspective, what does this look like? Oh, I think, you know, it often feels like the burden of carbon reduction is placed on the supplier. Um, and I think there's got to be a lot more sh sharing, not just of best practice, but also of costs, because, you know, we're trying to it's meant to be a win win situation for all of us. And I think, you know, it's about costing these things properly right at the 
at the outset um, and whether that's the, the design process, whether that's the materials, you know, because by the time you get to site, it's, it's too late to do some of these things. And then you might think, well, actually, we didn't cost for that. But now we've got to get it because we're being asked for it. And even though, you know, sometimes we're not even asked for it, it suddenly transpires halfway through the, the project that, you know, actually you need to be thinking about these things. So it's about planning that process better and having that understanding of the costs. And, you know, from my experience, I found that actually some low carbon or lower carbon things aren't more expensive they're actually cheaper like recycled aggregates is a a good example sometimes they can be cheaper Um, and I think you know it's very much a case of looking at whole life costing and then looking at payback times as well because the initial investment in eco welfare for example and the solar generation etc it can be a little bit eye-watering but when you you know take into account the fuel savings over the lifetime of a project actually there is a break-even point and it's convincing people that that's that's the information you need to make some of these decisions. Great, thank you. Um, Dean, was there anything you wanted to add on to that in addition to the design piece? Uh, yeah, I think so. I might as well. I can always take the microphone. Um, apologies, because for not mentioning the yeah. I mean, over forty percent saving on a on a on a on a pavement task, uh, and quite a remote one as well. Up in, on the A590, uh, up in up in Cumbria. It's not as if we're just just outside the the factory gate. Uh, is is a phenomenal thing, and when we're only setting a ten percent reduction target uh, for the for the first first few years, but we are setting a net zero um, uh, out outcome um, metric. Uh, for construction and maintenance by 2040, so we've, we've got to make those steps. But you know, if we can do 40% today, then then that's that's phenomenal. We shouldn't go there. I think I almost said this earlier. I think there's a recognition that um, as a government client, we've we've got to be seen to be taking the lead and not be the blocker I mentioned. Um, but we're also spending public money, so there's a there's a balance to be had there. Um, we haven't got um, government uh, appraisal altered yet. To, to re, it reflects the cost, cost of carbon, um, but maybe it's going to reflect it differently with, treasure, with, um, with, with new values of carbon and so on and so forth. Um, we may have to buy more expensive materials from time to time, but that whole life point, uh, Catherine, is really, really important. Um, maybe, maybe it'll pay back later. Um, and, and, and also, I, th- I, th- I think it's, I don't want to say a minefield because I'm really optimistic about it, but I think, I think there's, there's the right choices to be made. Um, possibly at the right time, um, and those choices are going to get get um, more more. more there can be more of them, and, and we'll make the right calls. I think more more often going forward. I suppose on a on a domestic sense, we're seeing this um, with with the the electric vehicles now, aren't we? The the, the 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 capital investment looks looks phenomenally high for some like me, um, and um, and there's a two litre diesel outside I'm afraid um, but the next choice will be electric and, and if I probably did the maths now it would tell me that I that should make that, that choice, choice tomorrow frankly That's brilliant, thank you um, so we're coming towards the end of the webinar today so I just wanted to ask um, the question about the most successful outcome from COP26 um, to the rest of the panel so um, uh, James should we start with you? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Catherine. There's a couple of things for me that really uh, gave me 
cause to be optimistic and one was about investment we've heard a lot about money and that's always the thing that gets raised that there was one one of the panels that i was watching in the first week where they had various entrepreneurs and inventors and innovators talking about all kinds of different things not just in our sector these wonderful some of them weird and wacky some of them really quite good and there's one guy sat on the edge uh, on the end of the panel just basically saying if you need the money i can get you the money to invest he was very blasé about it i i think the investment community has switched on to this now the, the ESG community, it's very much they see it as the way forward. Five, ten years ago, that conversation would have been a lot harder. They'd have been looking for, for quick returns on maybe energy efficiency at best, but now they're looking at real innovation for driving the carbon agenda. So, yeah, this guy just saying, you know, we can find investment for you um, <clears throat> was really promising. Now, that's obviously on a macro global scale. It's not down in kind of some of the, the detail that we've been talking today, but it will it will affect nonetheless. And also, a bit to one side, I was pleased to see that there was lots of discussion, particularly around methane emissions. It's a bit, as I say, it's a bit tangential, but there's a lot of focus on fossil fuels and carbon, and rightly so. The next big ticket item that we need to address globally and in our sector as well is methane emissions. And there was a pledge made with lots of 30s and by 2030 and that kind of stuff in the actual target. Um, because it's something that's a, that it's not on the radar for a lot of organizations and a lot of people. So, you know, there is there's stuff to do today, but there's definitely stuff for tomorrow. Um, we're, we're putting those things in place, which is positive. Okay, thank you. Now, in 30 seconds, uh, Kirsten, do you think you could um, respond to that question? Uh, yeah, I can I can run really quickly. So I think it's really around the engagement and uh, from the public and private sector. I think that's really ramped up at this COP and the um, commitment to do something. And I think a lot of that work actually was undertaken before COP26. There was a lot of work that went in ahead of it because businesses wanted to make their announcements and, and to demonstrate their credibility. So, yeah, the engagement and the commitment that come out of that from public and private sector would be me. Thank you. And Catherine? Yeah, I mean, for me, the biggest thing with COP, whether people were disappointed with it or not, was it made the news. You know, I've been in this game for a long time now, and to see it as a main headline on BBC News was was the biggest thing for me. And yeah, it's keeping that engagement going, like Kirsten's saying, and, and getting the public to push, put the pressure on and, you know, keep the pressure up on government, big businesses, etc., to make this change as soon as possible. And finally, from Dean. I can't do 30 seconds, Catherine. But I, I absolutely get that. That need for change was, was a key message for me. Um, but we've been saying that for the last 20 plus years or more. Um, the opportunity from the tech, is, as James mentioned. Um, but I think the, the adoption or the, or the, um, the recognition of, of, of that seemed to come over to me more now this time. Maybe it was the inspirational words of uh, Sir David Attenborough which just wiped the floor of any, any politician speaking there. And the next day I was speaking at Highways UK. I didn't give an Atterborough performance, but what I did see on, the, on that uh, adoption message was that whatever I said on carbon or, or broader sustainable development, sustainability, environmental sustainability to anybody, nobody rolled their eyes anymore, and there was a conversation straight away. And I think that is a step change um, that that need for change is perhaps brought about.